This is Atenea Americana. Atenea Americana. Atenea Americana. A window to the Latin universe. Stanford, 90.1 FM. Radio Atenea Americana. This is Atenea Americana. Bilingual house of culture. On the air and online. Radio Atenea Americana. Su casa de la cultura en la radio y online. Para la radio 90.1 KCSU Stanford. I am Isabel Jubes. Isabel Jubes. Bienvenidos. Atenea Americana. Welcome. Bienvenidos. From Stanford to the world. And today, our guest is Santa Clara County Supervisor Cindy Chavez, a longtime politician in the Bay Area who is running right now also for the mayor position in San Jose. She is a longtime resident of the city of San Jose. Chavez's father was a carpenter and her mother was a teacher's aide, spending much of her free time volunteering in the community. Her Hispanic heritage and gender make her unique as the local political representative of an area with a diverse local population. There have been 24 years since the last woman was mayor of San Jose. Chavez attended San Jose State University where her passion for politics and commitment to the community led her to find a path to public service. After graduating, she worked as a budget and policy aide on health, human services, and transportation issues at the Board of Supervisors. Four years later, Chavez joined the South Bay Labor Council as staff director. During her tenure there, she helped create and lead Working Partnership USA, a collaboration of businesses and civic groups focusing on issues affecting working families. Chavez won her first election to San Jose City Council in 1998, establishing standards for traffic calming, building affordable housing, and promoting excellent schools. Four years later, she was re-elected and named vice mayor. Some of the positions Supervisor Chavez holds at the moment are Chair of the Bay Area Air Quality Management District, member of the Caltrain Board of Directors, Board's Children, Families and Seniors Committee, Finance and Government Operations Committee, Commissioner representing Santa Clara County on the Metropolitan Transportation Commission. She serves on the Valley Transportation Authority or VTA in the Board of Directors and she was appointed by the Governor Newsom as Board of State and Community Corrections. Today, she's here to talk to us about her town's needs and goals, about the importance of representation, and also about the Hispanic Heritage Month and a little bit more. Stay with us here in Atenea Americana and remember that this and all the shows can be listened at stanfordhispanicbroadcasting.org or in your favorite podcast app. And here we are again in Atenea Americana and today our guest is Supervisor Cindy Chavez who is here to talk to us a little bit about 
the start of the Hispanic Heritage Month and also about her story, about her roots and about representation in politics. Welcome and thank you for being here in Stanford Radio. How is it to be a local woman in politics and represent one of the of the many diverse populations in the area. Perfect. Thanks, Isabel. So I'm really excited to be um, with you. And I will just tell a quick, about, a little bit of background. So my family um, came from New Mexico, my parents, when they were very, very young. And they came to California because they thought it was an opportunity to live in an environment that was more free of discrimination and racism than they felt like where they're where they were growing up and as young parents they decided to move to california my father was a carpenter um, my mother was still finishing school and finished actually by correspondence is what they used to call it that's how she finished high school um, she's gone on to become a marriage and family counselor and we ultimately ended up living in fremont i moved to san jose Um, in 1982, when I was a freshman at San Jose State. And I got involved in public service in large part because my parents were so involved in helping our church and helping our neighborhoods and helping our community. And so I, I really learned from my parents that when we think about community, we have to think about it in the most um, broad way, right? You don't think just about your family. You think about your neighborhood. You think about your church. You think about your place of work. And um, through their example, I learned that if, in fact, we really wanted the world to be better, um, we had to be part of making it so. Great. And uh, why do you think it's important uh, to have representation in our government, either for women or for uh, diverse populations? You know, government really needs to look like the people it governs. It needs to reflect all of our as much of our um, individual experiences as possible. And frankly, I think, especially as it, as it relates to everything, well, being a woman as well, and I'll, I'll share this, when I served on the city council many years ago, I was the first council member to ever um, be pregnant and have a baby while I was a council member in San Jose. And it really got me thinking a lot about everything from you know, where could a, a mother nurse her baby um, to whether or not in, in bathrooms there were safe places to change diapers. And, and I think those experiences come often, you know, from being a young mother. And, um, and I think they make a difference in the way we build our public policy. You know, the other thing is, is that I serve on the board of supervisors now and supervisor Ellenberg and I during COVID were very concerned about childcare because you had all these mothers and fathers who needed to go to work, nurses, doctors, janitors, um, and, and um, technicians, and you know all of these different jobs and, and the schools were closed and we were expecting people to, to work. And you know what many don't understand is that if you don't have safe childcare, or you don't have a place for your, you know, a nurturing environment for your child, you're not going to be able to go to work. Forget if you want to or not, you can't even do that. And again, I think it was the two women on the, on the board that really saw that 
urgency. I mean, everybody supported it. And certainly then Senator Cortese, who was on the board of supervisors then, played a leadership role. But that work really came from all of us understanding what it meant for the workforce. From your personal experience, of course, which they probably hadn't thought of it because they didn't live it. Or it had been a long time or somebody else was making that decision in the household, yes. What kind of decisions were made during the pandemic times that you think actually benefited directly uh, women and minorities in uh, the area? Yeah, what a great question. So just for your listeners' benefit, the County of Santa Clara and the City of San Jose are among the most vaccinated in the country. And part of the reason that happened is that we took a different approach to vaccinations and, and, and testing. And so what we knew was we had a whole bunch of people in the community who didn't have access to the computer and it wasn't easy for them to go online to sign up for testing and vaccination. And so what we did is we put people to go to door to door, door to door to be able to get people signed up for testing and get people signed up for vaccinations. And we did it in multiple languages. And what um, another thing I would just say is that 40% of all of the people who live here are foreign born. And so making sure that you have language and cultural competency as you're trying to encourage people during a pandemic to get the help they need um, is really tricky. And so that, that body of work and having having leaders of color and people who had experienced um, perhaps isolation or being in a new environment really helped us think differently about our approach. And, and your other point, Isabel, that I just want to, I want to just hone in on is this, as a community, as a, as a pluralistic society, we have to think much more innovatively about how we provide services than we would if everybody spoke the same language and had the same culture. Exactly, because it's a more diverse population from how many languages do you, if you know, that people normally oh, speak it, it's, yeah. it's a That's a good question. I, I don't know. I will say that we are able at, at our county hospitals to to either have people who can who can communicate or translate on site or through our, our um, communication programming translation over over 100 languages. And what do you think are the most, well, there are always needs of any kinds in, in the cities, but what are the more urgent right now for San Jose? I think that, you know, San Jose has a number of challenges, among them public safety, affordability, homelessness, and cleanliness. And all of those issues are really on top of mind for, for the people in our community. And, you know, in particular, I'll just start by talking about public safety. When I served on the city council in San Jose um, 16 years ago, we were the safest big city in the country. And we aren't anymore. And part of the reason for that is that we have 200 less police officers than when I served on the council. And... And now for a priority two call, and that's if you've been robbed or even assaulted and the perpetrator isn't there anymore, we used to try, I mean, we used to get there in less than 10 minutes. Now it's 20, it's 20 minutes to wait for an officer. And so we, 
we, we as a community need to reorganize our priorities and take a portion of all of the overtime pay that's been set aside because we don't have enough officers. We have a lot of forced overtime, but taking a big chunk of that overtime and actually applying it to hiring new officers. And uh, with that, I mean, they're having a lot of talk in, in the last few years uh, also about integrating the police with other social services and other services that are make them more interact better with the community. Is that happening also in San Jose? It is. And um, and interest that's such an interesting question, Isabel, because we have two programs that we've been running for a couple of years. And one of them is called MCAT. And it has two officers and, and two to three clinicians that respond to mental health crises. So if somebody is having a mental health crisis and they let the the um, operator at 911 dispatcher know that, then they're able to get the right services to, to respond. The other th program that we have that's just being kicked off now is called Trust. And it's intended to make sure that um, folks with lived experience are responding to somebody who's having a mental health crisis and trying to get them the services that they need. And then we have two programs um, that are emergency programs, especially that are geared toward young people. So if you have a young person who's in crisis um, and maybe suicidal or, or you know, behaving in a way that you think is unhealthy and erratic, you can call and we can send um, a, a response from a, co a company or a nonprofit called Alamark Counseling Services or Pacific Clinics, and they'll send out a, a counselor right to your home. If you dial 988, you can have access to all of these services. If it's an emergency and a life-threatening emergency, you want to dial 911. But if you if you are personally suicidal or you want to get help for somebody else, you can dial 988 and we can help you get the services that you need. Uh, my son, who is a big fan, was also telling me that uh, you implemented Uh, as one of these safety measurements, also as a woman, uh, measurements that make the rape kits be available and faster. That I, I remember, I don't know, quite a few years ago, eight, ten years ago, there was the news that the rape kits weren't available, that people were waiting for months for them to be processed, but actually you solved that problem locally. Yes, that. thank you for the question. So working with the district attorney, Jeff Rosen, we did a few things. One, we made sure that in Santa Clara County, we don't have a backlog anymore of untested kids. And across the country, what was happening is that victims of sexual assault were getting examined. The kits were being taken, but not processed. And that's horrific for a bunch of reasons besides the disrespect for the victim. What it also means is that the DNA of the perpetrator wasn't put into a national database. So if I was um, a victim and my and the, the DNA kit went into CODIS here into the database, but somebody had been a victim in another state, there would be no way to connect those two cases. So Um, President Obama actually gave a bunch of cities the ability to process those kits. But then what happened is people didn't upload them into CODIS and they didn't, they didn't um, do the investigation. In our community, we wanted to make sure that we had no backlog and that we had a method for testing 
and strong investigation. On the method for testing, we test rape kits here faster than anywhere in the country, anywhere in the country. And we do that because we respect the victim and we want to catch the perpetrator as quickly as possible. We hope this is a national model because what happens here is that it, for a stranger um, assault, we test those kits in less than five days. For any other kit, they're tested less than 30 days. But most of the time, we're, we're at a 15-day mark. So we're working really hard to get that, as, uh, that window as closed as we can. And uh, about the other problem you mentioned, a homeless, which is, if not all around the state, maybe even national, a problem that has risen way out of charge in the last few years. And part of your proposals are a more integrated approach. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I, I'm sorry, I missed the very beginning of what you said. Oh, yeah, sorry, that uh, you were talking uh, at the beginning that one of the problems that you think are important to tackle are the homelessness, which is also a national problem, but it has been a very step problem uh, in the rise in the last few years uh, in, the, in California. Mm -hmm. Yes, Isabel, thank you for the question. And one of the reasons is that we have such a high percentage of people who live here who are overly rent burdened. And what that means is that they're spending more than 50% of their income in their household income on rent or mortgages. And when that happens, if anybody loses a job and you're that close to, to um, being homeless, then what happens is you become homeless. And so one of the things that that we as a community have really been focused on is what can we do to both make sure that we get people who are living on the streets properly housed and keep people from becoming homeless in the first place. And what we learned during COVID is that we had a lot of families that were just one paycheck away or two paychecks away from becoming homeless. We worked really hard to assist people in paying um, rents and mortgages and helping them get back on their feet, maybe fixing a car so they could go to a job, uh, paying a bill for um, school student debt. You know, we really worked on this. And what we found is by spending as little as $5,000 per household, we were able to keep people stably housed for about a year and a half to almost two years. And so what we're really focused on is how do we keep people from becoming homeless in the first place? Because once somebody's homeless, as you know, it, it the, the they decompensate on the streets, right? If you already had a drug or alcohol problem, it's only going to get worse. If you had a mental health issue, it's only going to get worse. Um, we have a lot of, and the other thing people don't know here is that we have a really high percentage of people who are living on the street, who are homeless, who are women. And more, more, we have more women that are part of our homeless population than almost any other place in the nation. And a lot of times women are becoming homeless for the same reasons that men are, which is losing a job, having a health issue, um, having a mental health issue, um, but also because of domestic violence. And so we need to do a lot more both to prevent that from happening, but also keeping people from staying on the streets for an extended period of time. And so what we're trying to do is that if somebody um, is homeless, that we can rapidly rehouse them instead of waiting a long time for them to be assaulted on the street or having more horrible things happen to them. And so I'm very focused on that prevention, very focused on the uh, intervention, but also continuing to house as many people as we can. 
Are there any special celebrations uh, this month for Hispanic Heritage Month? There are, yes. You know, a lot of our um, a lot of our news channels do awards and celebrations. It's also the month that the um, the Hispanic Foundation does the La Familia Award, which is a big, very um, extravagant uh, gala. And I don't know who the winners are this year, but the families that have been honored have always been amazing, right? Community givers, and um, and it's such a beautiful way to pay tribute because, um, you know, honestly, because it's, it's a very culturally appropriate way to not honor just an individual, but our entire families that are contributing to the community. Um, and so that's a really big deal. And then let us, the lawyers have their big um, banquet coming up in a, in a couple of weeks, which is, um, that is a group of attorneys. They, they, um, their event every year, they give scholarships for law students And um, I think they're primarily first or second year law students that they want to make sure, you know, can can get into law school and then stay in law school. And they always give um, a, it's a beautiful event and they give out, uh, I think, 10 or 12 scholarships. It's very, very powerful um, experience. And so if you want to make contributions, you can go online to Let Us a Lawyers in Santa Clara County. Um, and then. Um, You know, there's this, the, the, both the board of supervisors will formally honor Mexican Heritage Month. And I think almost every council in our area does that. Um, so it's a beautiful time to both celebrate our heritage and our culture and also to recognize how very, very diverse it is. You know, I, I think because people think that there's a common language that 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 language is also always means a common culture and common, you know, in the same food. And it doesn't, it doesn't. And so I'm, I'm always very excited about this time of the year because I think people get to know more and more about each other's cultures, even among the Latino community, but the, you know, other communities get to know our culture a little better as well. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, uh, we are very uh, grateful here at the station for your time. <laughs> <laughs> So thank you for being here with us in uh, Stanford Radio and in KCSU and in Latin Americana and today in Facebook Live. How wonderful, Isabel. I look forward to coming to visit you again. And I'm so grateful I got asked and happy Mexican Heritage Month and or a Hispanic, I'm sorry, Heritage Month and enjoy it. And I, I'm sure you're going to have a lot of wonderful guests come to visit you. Yes, thank you. Thanks all. And this was Atenea Americana. Atenea Americana. Stanford 90.1 FM. Atenea Americana. A window to the Latin universe. This is Atenea Americana. Bilingual house of culture. On the air and online. Su casa de la cultura en la radio y online. Para la radio 90.1 KCSU Stanford. I am Isabel Juves. Isabel Juves. Vuelve pronto. Atenea Americana. From Stanford to the world. Remember to come back soon. Ciao. See you later.